0: Welcome back to 1001 Stories for the Road and The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. We're in Second Period, First Narrative, Chapters 6, 7, and 8. And now, Chapter 6. Section 1. In quotes, Miss Clack presents her compliments to Mr. Franklin Blake and, in sending him the fifth chapter of her humble narrative, begs to say that she feels quite unequal to enlarge as she could wish on an event so awful, under the circumstances, as Lady Verinder's death. She has, therefore, attached to her own manuscripts, copious extracts from precious publications in her possession, all bearing on this terrible subject. And may those extracts, Miss Clack fervently hopes, sound as the blast of a trumpet in the ears of a respected kinsman, Mr. Franklin Blake." SECTION 2 IN PARENTHESES In quotes, Mr. Franklin Blake presents his compliments to Miss Clack, and begs to thank her for the fifth chapter of her narrative. In returning the extracts set with it, he will refrain from mentioning any personal objection which he may entertain to this species of literature, and will merely say that the proposed additions to the manuscript are not necessary to the fulfillment of the purpose that he has in view. End quote SECTION 3 IN PARENTHESES Miss Clack, Miss Clack begs to acknowledge the return of her extracts. She affectionately reminds Mr. Franklin Blake that she is a Christian, and that it is, therefore, quite impossible for him to offend her. Miss C. persists in feeling the deepest interest in Mr. Blake, and pledges herself, on the first occasion when sickness may lay him low, to offer him the use of her extracts for the second time. In the meanwhile, she would be glad to know, before beginning the final chapters of her narrative, whether she may be permitted to make her humble contribution complete by availing herself of the light which later discoveries have thrown on the mystery of the moonstone. End quote. Section four in parentheses. Quote: Mr. Franklin Blake is sorry to disappoint Miss Clack. He can only repeat the instructions which he had the honor of giving her when she began her narrative. She is requested to limit herself to her own individual experience of persons and events as recorded in her diary later discoveries she would be good enough to leave to the pens of those persons who can write in the capacity of actual witnesses section five quote, miss clack is extremely sorry to trouble mr franklin blake with another letter her extracts have been returned and the expression of her matured views on the subject of the moonstone have been forbidden miss clack is painfully conscious that she ought in the worldly phase to feel herself put down but no Miss C. has learnt perseverance in the school of adversity. Her object in writing is to know whether Mr. Blake, who prohibits anything else, prohibits the appearance of the present correspondence in Miss Clack's narrative. Some explanation of the position in which Mr. Blake's interference has placed her as an authoress seems due on the ground of common justice, and Miss Clack, on her side, is most anxious that her letters should be produced to speak for themselves. End quote. Section 6. Mr. Franklin Blake agrees to Miss Clack's proposal on the understanding that she will kindly consider this intimation of his consent as closing the correspondence between them. Section 7. Miss Clack feels it an act of Christian duty before the correspondence closes to inform Mr. Franklin Blake that his last letter, evidently intended to offend her, has not succeeded in accomplishing the object of the writer. She affectionately requests Mr. Blake to retire to the privacy of his own room and to consider within himself whether the training which can thus elevate a poor weak woman above the reach of insult, be not worthy of greater admiration than he is now disposed to feel for it. On being favoured with an intimation to that effect, Miss C. solemnly pledges herself to send back the complete series of her extracts to Mr. Franklin Blake. To this letter no answer was received. Comment is needless. Signed, Drusilla Clack Chapter 7 The foregoing correspondence will sufficiently explain why no choice is left to me but to pass over Lady Verinder's death with the simple announcement of the fact which ends my fifth chapter. Keeping myself for the future strictly within the limits of my own personal experience, I have next to relate that a month elapsed from the time of my aunt's decease before Rachel Verinder and I met again. That meeting was the occasion of my spending a few days under the same roof with her. In the course of my visit, something happened— relative to her marriage engagement with Mr. Godfrey Ablewhite, which is important enough to require special notice in these pages. When this last of many painful family circumstances has been disclosed, my task will be completed, for I shall then have told all that I know as an actual and most unwilling witness of events. My aunt's remains were removed from London and were buried in the little cemetery attached to the church in her own park. I was invited to the funeral with the rest of the family, but it was impossible, with my religious views, to rouse myself in a few days only from the shock which this death had caused me. I was informed, moreover, that the rector of prison hall was to read the service. Having myself in past times seen this clerical castaway making one of the players at Lady Verinder's whist-table, I doubt, even if I had been fit to travel, whether I should have felt justified in attending the ceremony." Lady Verinder's death left her daughter under the care of her brother in law, Mr. Abelwhite the elder. He was appointed guardian by the will until his niece married or came of age. Under these circumstances, Mr. Godfrey informed his father, I suppose, of the new relation in which he stood towards Rachel. At any rate, in ten days from my aunt's death, the secret of the marriage engagement was no secret at all within the circle of the family, and the grand question for Mr. Abelwhite, senior another confirmed castaway, was how to make himself and his authority most agreeable to the wealthy young lady who was going to marry his son. Rachel gave him some trouble at the outset about the choice of a place in which she could be prevailed upon to reside. The house in Montague Square was associated with the calamity of her mother's death. The house in Yorkshire was associated with the scandalous affair of the lost moonstone. Her guardian's own residence at Prison Hall was open to neither of these objections." But Rachel's presence in it, after her recent bereavement, operated as a check on the gaieties of her cousins, the Miss Abelwhite's, and she herself requested that her visit might be deferred to a more favorable opportunity. It ended in a proposal emanating from old Mr. Abelwhite to try a furnished house at Brighton. His wife, an invalid daughter, and Rachel were to inhabit it together, and were to expect him to join them later in the season. And were, and were to expect him to join them later in the season. They would see no society but a few old friends, and they would have his son Godfrey, travelling backwards and forwards by the London train, always at their disposal. I described this aimless flitting about from one place of residence to another, this insatiate restlessness of body and appalling stagnation of soul, merely with the view of arriving at results. The event which, under Providence, "'proved to be the means of bringing Rachel Verinder and myself together again, "'was no other than the hiring of the house at Brighton. "'My Aunt Abel White is a large, silent, fair-complexioned woman "'with one noteworthy point in her character. "'From the hour of her birth she has never been known to do anything for herself. "'She has gone through life accepting everybody's help "'and adopting everybody's opinions. "'A more hopeless person, in a spiritual point of view, I've never met.' There is absolutely, in this perplexing case, no obstructive material to work upon. Aunt Abelwhite would listen to the Grand Lama of Tibet exactly as she listens to me, and would reflect his views quite as readily as she reflects mine. She found the furnished house at Brighton by stopping at an hotel in London, composing herself on a sofa, and sending for her son. She discovered the necessary servants by breakfasting in bed one morning still at the hotel, and giving her maid a holiday on condition that the girl would begin enjoying herself by fetching Miss Clack. I found her placidly fanning herself in her dressing gown at eleven o'clock. Drusilla, dear, I want some servants. You are so clever. Please get them for me.' I looked round the untidy room. The church bells were going for a weekday service. They suggested a word of affectionate remonstrance on my part. "'Oh, aunt,' I said sadly, "'Is this worthy of a Christian Englishwoman? "'Is the passage from time to eternity "'to be made in this manner?' "'My aunt answered. "'I'll put on my gown, Drusilla, "'if you will be kind enough to help me.' "'What was to be said after that? "'I've done wonders with murderesses, "'and I've never advanced an inch with Aunt Abelwhite.' "'Where is the list?' I asked, "'of the servants whom you require.' "'My aunt shook her head.' "'She hadn't even energy enough to keep the list. "'Rachel has got it, dear,' she said, "'in the next room.' "'I went into the next room, "'and so saw Rachel again for the first time "'since we had parted in Montague Square. "'She looked pitiably small and thin in her deep mourning. "'If I attached any serious importance "'to such a perishable trifle as personal appearance,' "'I might be inclined to add that hers was one of those unfortunate complexions "'which always suffer when not relieved by a border of white next to the skin. "'But what are our complexions and our looks? "'Hindrances and pitfalls, dear girls, "'which beset us on our way to higher things. "'Greatly to my surprise, Rachel rose when I entered the room "'and came forward to meet me with an outstretched hand. "'I'm glad to see you,' she said. "'Drusilla,' I have been in the habit of speaking very foolishly and very rudely to you on former occasions. I beg your pardon, and I hope you will forgive me. My face, I suppose, betrayed the astonishment I felt at this. She colored up for a moment, and then proceeded to explain herself. In my poor mother's lifetime, she went on, her friends were not always my friends, too. Now I have lost her. My heart turns for comfort to the people she liked. She liked you. Try to be friends with me, Drusilla, if you can. To any rightly constituted mind, the motive thus acknowledged was simply shocking. Here in Christian England was a young woman in a state of bereavement, with so little idea of where to look for true comfort, that she actually expected to find it among her mother's friends. Here was a relative of mine, "'awakened to a sense of her shortcomings towards others, "'under the influence, not of conviction and duty, "'but of sentiment and impulse. "'Most deplorable to think of, "'but still, suggestive of something hopeful, "'to a person of my experience implying the good work. "'There could be no harm, I thought, "'in ascertaining the extent of the change "'which the loss of her mother had wrought "'in Rachel's character. "'I decided, as a useful test, a probe her on the subject of her marriage engagement to Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. We'll return with this chapter of The Moonstone, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Having first met her advances with all possible cordiality, I sat by her on the sofa at her own request. We discussed family affairs and future plans, always accepting that one future plan which was to end in her marriage. Try as I might to turn the conversation that way, she resolutely declined to take the hint. Any open reference to the question, on my part, would have been premature at this early stage of our reconciliation. Besides, I had discovered all I wanted to know. She was no longer the reckless, defiant creature whom I had heard and seen on the occasion of my martyrdom in Montague Square. This was, of itself, enough to encourage me to take her future conversion in hand beginning with a few words of earnest warning directed against the hasty formation of the marriage tie, and so getting on to higher things. Looking at her now, with this new interest, and calling to mind the headlong suddenness with which she had met Mr. Godfrey's matrimonial views, I felt the solemn duty of interfering with a fervor which assured me that I should achieve no common results. Rapidity of proceeding was, as I believed, of importance in this case." I went back at once to the question of the servants wanted for the furnished house. "'Where is the list, dear?' Rachel produced it. "'Cook, kitchen-maid, housemaid, and footman,' I read. "'My dear Rachel, these servants are only wanted for a term, the term during which your guardian has taken the house. "'We shall have great difficulty in finding persons of character and capacity to accept a temporary engagement of that sort, if we try in London. "'Has the house in Brighton been found yet?' "'She answered, "'Yes. Godfrey has taken it, "'and persons in the house wanted him to hire them as servants. "'He thought they would hardly do for us, "'and came back having settled nothing.' "'And you have no experience yourself in these matters, Rachel?' "'None whatever.' "'And Aunt Abelwhite won't exert herself?' "'No, poor dear. Don't blame her, Drusilla. "'I think she's the only really happy woman I've ever met with.' <sighs> "'There are degrees in happiness, darling.' "'We must have a little talk, some day, on that subject. "'In the meantime, I will undertake to meet the difficulty about the servants. "'Your aunt will write a letter to the people of the house. "'She will sign a letter, if I write it for her, which comes to the same thing. "'Quite the same thing. "'I shall get the letter, and I will go to Brighton tomorrow. "'How extremely kind of you! "'We will join you as soon as you are ready for us. "'And you will stay, I hope, as my guest.' brightness so lively, you are sure to enjoy it. In those words the invitation was given, and the glorious prospect of interference was opened before me. It was then the middle of the week. By Saturday afternoon the house was ready for them. In that short interval I had sifted, not the characters only, but the religious views as well, of all the disengaged servants who applied to me, and had succeeded in making a selection which my conscience approved. I also discovered— and called on two serious friends of mine, residents in the town, to whom I knew could confine the pious object which had brought me to Brighton. One of them, a clerical friend, kindly helped me to take sittings for our little party in the church in which he himself ministered. The other, a single lady, like myself, placed the resources of her library, composed throughout of precious publications, entirely at my disposal. I borrowed half a dozen works, all carefully chosen with a view to Rachel. When these had been judiciously distributed in the various rooms she would be likely to occupy, I considered that my preparations were complete. Sound doctrine in the servants who waited on her, sound doctrine in the minister who preached to her, sound doctrine in the books that lay on her table. Such was the treble welcome which my zeal had prepared for the motherless girl. A heavenly composure filled my mind on that Saturday afternoon, "'as I sat at the window, waiting the arrival of my relatives. "'The giddy throng passed and repassed before my eyes. "'Alas! "'How many of them felt my exquisite sense of duty done? "'An awful question. "'Let us not pursue it.' "'Between six and seven the travellers arrived. "'To my indescribable surprise, "'they were escorted, not by Mr. Godfrey, "'as I had anticipated, "'but by the lawyer, Mr. Bruff. "'How do you do, Miss Clack?' he said. "'I mean to stay this time.' That reference to the occasion on which I had obliged him to postpone his business to mine, when we were both visiting in Montague Square, satisfied me that the old worldling had come to Brighton with some object of his own in view. I had prepared quite a little paradise for my beloved Rachel, and here was the serpent already. Godfrey was very much vexed Drusilla not to be able to come with us, "'said my Aunt Abelwhite. "'There was something in the way which kept him in town. "'Mr. Bruff volunteered to take his place "'and make a holiday of it till Monday morning. "'By the by, Mr. Bruff, I'm ordered to take exercise, "'and I don't like it.' "'That,' added Aunt Abelwhite, "'pointing out of the window to an invalid "'going by in a chair on wheels, drawn by a man, "'is my idea of exercise. "'If it's air you want, you get it in your chair, "'and if it's fatigue you want,' "'I'm sure it's fatigue enough to look at the man.' Rachel stood silent, at a window by herself, with her eyes fixed on the sea. "'Tired, love?' I inquired. "'No, only a little out of spirits,' she answered. "'I've often seen the sea. "'On our Yorkshire coast, with that light on it. "'And I was thinking, Drusilla, "'of the days that can never come again.' Mr. Bruff remained to dinner, "'and stayed through the evening. "'The more I saw of him, "'the more certain I felt "'that he had some private end to serve "'in coming to Brighton. "'I watched him carefully. "'He maintained the same appearance of ease "'and talked the same godless gossip "'hour after hour "'until it was time to take leave. "'As he shook hands with Rachel, "'I caught his hard and cunning eyes "'resting on her for a moment "'with a peculiar interest and attention. "'She was plainly concerned "'in the object that he had in view.' HE SAID NOTHING OUT OF THE COMMON TO HER OR TO ANYONE ON LEAVING. HE INVITED HIMSELF TO luncheon THE NEXT DAY, AND THEN HE WENT AWAY TO HIS HOTEL. IT WAS IMPOSSIBLE THE NEXT MORNING TO GET MY AUNT Ablewhite OUT OF HER DRESSING GOWN IN TIME FOR CHURCH. HER INVALID DAUGHTER, SUFFERING FROM NOTHING, IN MY OPINION, BUT INCURABLE LAZINESS, INHERITED FROM HER MOTHER, ANNOUNCED THAT SHE MEANT TO REMAIN IN BED FOR THE DAY. RACHEL AND I WENT ALONE TOGETHER TO CHURCH. A magnificent sermon was preached by my gifted friend on the heathen indifference of the world to the sinfulness of little sins. For more than an hour his eloquence, assisted by his glorious voice, thundered through the sacred edifice. I said to Rachel, when we came out, "'Has it found its way to your heart, dear?' And she answered, "'No, it's only made my headache.' This might have been discouraging to some people, but, once embarked on a career of manifest usefulness, "'Nothing discourages me.' "'We found Aunt Abelwhite and Mr. Bruff at luncheon. "'When Rachel declined eating anything "'and gave as a reason for it "'that she was suffering from a headache, "'the lawyer's cunning instantly saw "'and seized the chance that she had given him. "'There's only one remedy for a headache,' "'said this horrible old man. "'A walk, Miss Rachel, is the thing to cure you. "'I am entirely at your service. "'If you'll honour me by accepting my arm. With the greatest pleasure, a walk is the very thing I was longing for. It's past two. I gently suggested, and the afternoon service Rachel begins at three. How can you expect me to go to church again? She asked petulantly, with such a headache as mine. Mr. Bruff officiously opened the door for her in another minute more. They were both out of the house. I don't know when I felt the solemn duty of interfering so strongly as I felt it at that moment. But what was to be done? Nothing was to be done but to interfere at the first opportunity later in the day. On my return from the afternoon service, I found that they had just got back. One look at them told me that the lawyer had said what he wanted to say. I have never before seen Rachel so silent and so thoughtful. I had never before seen Mr. Bruff pay her such devoted attention, and look at her with such marked respect. He had, or pretended that he had, an engagement to dinner that day, and he took an early leave of us all, intending to go back to London by the first train next morning. "'Are you sure of your own resolution?' he said to Rachel at the door. "'Quite sure,' she answered. And so they parted. The moment his back was turned— Rachel withdrew to her own room. She never appeared at dinner. Her maid, the person with the cap-ribbons, was sent downstairs to announce that her headache had returned. I ran up to her and made all sorts of sisterly offers through the door. It was locked, and she kept it locked. Plenty of obstructive material to work on here. I felt greatly cheered and stimulated by her locking the door. When her cup of tea went up to her the next morning, I followed it in. "'I sat by her bedside and said a few earnest words. "'She listened with languid civility. "'I noticed my serious friend's precious publications "'huddled together on a table in the corner. "'Had she chanced to look into them?' I asked. "'Yes, and they had not interested her. "'Would she allow me to read a few passages of the deepest interest, "'which had probably escaped her eye? "'No, not now. "'She had other things to think of.' She gave these answers, with her attention apparently absorbed in folding and refolding the frilling on her nightgown. It was plainly necessary to rouse her by some reference to those worldly interests which she still had at heart. "'Do you know, love?' I said. "'I had an odd fancy yesterday about Mr. Bruff. "'I thought, when I saw you after your walk with him, that he'd been telling you some bad news.' Her fingers dropped from the frilling of her nightgown, And her fierce black eyes flashed at me. Quite the contrary, she said. It was news I was interested in hearing, and I'm deeply indebted to Mr. Bruff for telling me of it. Yes, I said, in a tone of gentle interest. Her fingers went back to the frilling, and she turned her head sullenly away from me. I had been met in this manner, in the course of plying the good work, hundreds of times. She merely stimulated me to try again. "'In my dauntless zeal for her welfare, "'I ran the great risk "'and openly alluded to her marriage engagement. "'News you were interested in hearing?' "'I repeated. "'I suppose, my dear Rachel, "'that must be news of Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite.' "'She started up in the bed "'and turned deadly pale. "'It was evidently on the tip of her tongue "'to retort on me "'with the unbridled insolence of former times. "'She checked herself.' laid her head back on the pillow, considered a minute, and then answered in these remarkable words, I shall never marry Mr. Godfrey Ablewhite." It was my turn to start at that. What can you possibly mean? I exclaimed. The marriage is considered by the whole family as a settled thing. Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite is expected here today, she said doggedly. Wait till he comes, and you will see. "'But, my dear Rachel!' She rang the bell at the head of her bed. The person with the cap-ribbons appeared. "'Penelope? My bath?' "'Let me give her her due. In the state of my feelings at the moment, I do sincerely believe that she had hit on the only possible way of forcing me to leave the room. By the mere worldly mind, my position towards Rachel might have been viewed as presenting difficulties of no ordinary kind.' "'I had reckoned on leading her to higher things "'by means of a little earnest exhortation "'on the subject of her marriage. "'And now, if she was to be believed, "'no such event as her marriage "'was to take place at all. "'But ah, my friends, "'a working Christian of my experience, "'with an evangelizing prospect before her, "'takes broader views than these. "'Supposing Rachel really broke off the marriage "'on which the Whites, father and son, "'counted as a settled thing, "'what would be the result?' It could only end, if she held firm, in an exchanging of hard words and bitter accusations on both sides. A salutary moral depression would be the effect. Her pride would be exhausted, her stubbornness would be exhausted, by the resolute resistance which it was in her character to make under the circumstances. She would turn for sympathy to the nearest person who had sympathy to offer. And I was that nearest person, brimful of comfort, charged to overflowing with seasonable and reviving words. Never had the evangelizing prospect looked brighter, to my eyes, than it looked now. She came down to breakfast, but she ate nothing and hardly uttered a word. After breakfast, she wandered listlessly from room to room, then suddenly roused herself and opened the piano. The music she selected to play was of the most scandalously profane sort, associated with performances on the stage which it curdles one blood to think of. It would have been premature to interfere with her at such a time as this. I privately ascertained the hour at which Mr. Godfrey Ablewhite was expected, and then I escaped the music by leaving the house. Being out alone, I took the opportunity of calling upon my two resident friends. It was an indescribable luxury to find myself indulging in earnest conversation with serious persons. Infinitely encouraged and refreshed, I turned my steps back again to the house, "'an excellent time to await the arrival of our expected visitor. "'I entered the dining-room, always empty at that hour of day, "'and found myself face to face with Mr. Godfrey Ablewhite. "'He made no attempt to fly the place. "'Quite the contrary. "'He advanced to meet me with the utmost eagerness. "'Dear Miss Clack, I've been only waiting to see you. "'Chance set me free of my London engagements today "'sooner than I had expected, "'and I have got here, in consequence, earlier than my appointed time. Not the slightest embarrassment encumbered his explanation, though this was his first meeting with me after the scene in Montague Square. He was not aware, it is true, of my having been a witness of that scene, but he knew, on the other hand, that my attendances at the mother's small clothes, and my relations with friends attached to other charities, must have informed me of his shameless neglect of his ladies and of his poor. And yet here he was before me, in full possession of his charming voice and his irresistible smile. "'Have you seen Rachel yet?' I asked. He sighed gently and took me by the hand. I should certainly have snatched my hand away, if the manner in which he gave his answer had not paralyzed me with astonishment. "'I have seen Rachel,' he said, with perfect tranquility. "'You are aware, dear friend, that she was engaged to me.' "'Well, she has taken a sudden resolution to break the engagement.' "'Reflection has convinced her that she will best consult her welfare and mine "'by retracting a rash promise "'and leaving me free to make some happier choice elsewhere. "'That is the only reason she will give "'and the only answer she will make to every question that I can ask of her. "'What have you done on your side?' I inquired. "'Have you submitted?' "'Yes,' he said, with the most unruffled composure. "'I have submitted.' "'His conduct, under the circumstances, was so utterly inconceivable.' "'that I stood bewildered with my hand in his. "'It is a piece of rudeness to stare at anybody, "'and it is an act of indelicacy to stare at a gentleman. "'I committed both these improprieties, "'and I said, as if in a dream, "'What does it mean?' "'Permit me to tell you,' he replied. "'And suppose we sit down?' "'He led me to a chair. "'I have an indistinct remembrance that he was very affectionate. I don't think he put his arm round my waist to support me, but I'm not sure. I was quite helpless, and his ways with ladies were very endearing. At any rate, we sat down. I can answer for that, if I can answer for nothing more. And now, Chapter 8. I have lost a beautiful girl, an excellent social position, and a handsome income, Mr. Godfrey began, and I've submitted to it without a struggle." "'What can be the motive for such extraordinary conduct as that? "'My precious friend, there is no motive.' "'No motive?' I repeated. "'Let me appeal, my dear Miss Clack, to your experience of children.' He went on. "'A child pursues a certain course of conduct. "'You are greatly struck by it, and you attempt to get at the motive. "'The dear little thing is incapable of telling you its motive. "'You might as well ask the grass why it grows.' "'or the birds' why they sing. "'Well, in this matter, I am like the dear little thing, "'like the grass, like the birds. "'I don't know why I made a proposal of marriage to Miss Verinder. "'I don't know why I have shamefully neglected my dear ladies. "'I don't know why I have apostatized from the mother's small clothes. "'You say to the child, "'Why have you been naughty?' "'And the little angel puts its finger into its mouth and doesn't know. "'My case exactly, Miss Clack. "'I couldn't confess it to anybody else.' I feel impelled to confess it to you. I began to recover myself. A mental problem was involved here. I am deeply interested in mental problems, and I am not, it is thought, without some skill in solving them. Best of friends, exert your intellect and help me, he proceeded. Tell me, why does a time come when these matrimonial proceedings of mine begin to look like something done in a dream? Why does it suddenly occur to me "'that my true happiness is in helping my dear ladies "'in going my modest round of useful work. "'In seeing my few earnest words "'when called upon by my chairman. "'What do I want with a position? "'I've got a position. "'What do I want with an income? "'I can pay for my bread and cheese "'and my nice little lodging "'and my two coats a year. "'What do I want with Miss Verinder? "'She has told me with her own lips. "'This dear lady is between ourselves. "'That she loves another man.' "'and that her only idea in marrying me "'is to try and put that other man out of her head. "'What a horrid union is this! "'Oh, dear me! What a horrid union! "'Such are my reflections, Miss Clack, "'on my way to Brighton. "'I approach Rachel with the feeling of a criminal "'who is going to receive his sentence. "'When I find that she has changed her mind, too, "'when I hear her propose to break the engagement, "'I experience, there's no sort of doubt about it, "'a most overpowering sense of relief.' A month ago I was pressing her rapturously to my bosom. An hour ago, the happiness of knowing that I shall never press her again intoxicates me like strong liquor. The thing seems impossible. The thing can't be. And yet there are the facts, as I had the honor of stating them when we first sat down together in these two chairs. I have lost a beautiful girl, an excellent social position, and a handsome income, and I've submitted to it without a struggle. CAN YOU ACCOUNT FOR THAT, DEAR FRIEND? IT'S QUITE BEYOND ME. HIS MAGNIFICENT HEAD SANK ON HIS BREAST, AND HE GAVE UP HIS OWN MENTAL PROBLEM IN DESPAIR. I WAS DEEPLY TOUCHED. THE CASE, IF I MAY SPEAK AS A SPIRITUAL PHYSICIAN, WAS NOW QUITE PLAIN TO ME. IT IS NO UNCOMMON EVENT, IN THE EXPERIENCE OF US ALL, TO SEE THE POSSESSORS OF EXALTED ABILITY OCCASIONALLY HUMBLED TO THE LEVEL OF THE MOST POORLY GIFTED PEOPLE ABOUT THEM. THE OBJECT, NO DOUBT, IN THE WISE ECONOMY OF PROVIDENCE, IS TO REMIND GREATNESS THAT IT IS MORTAL AND THAT THE POWER WHICH HAS CONFERRED IT CAN ALSO TAKE IT AWAY. IT WAS NOW, TO MY MIND, EASY TO DISCERN ONE OF THESE SALUTARY HUMILIATIONS IN THE DEPLORABLE PROCEEDINGS ON DEAR MR. GODFREY'S PART, OF WHICH I HAD BEEN THE UNSEEN WITNESS. AND IT WAS EQUALLY EASY TO RECOGNIZE THE WELCOME REAPPEARANCE OF HIS OWN FINER NATURE IN THE HORROR WITH WHICH HE recoiled FROM THE IDEA OF A MARRIAGE WITH Rachel and in the charming eagerness which he showed to return to his ladies and his poor. I put this view before him in a few simple and sisterly words. His joy was beautiful to see. He compared himself, as I went on, to a lost man emerging from the darkness into the light. When I answered for a loving reception of him at the mother's small close, the grateful heart of our Christian hero overflowed. He pressed my hands alternately to his lips. Overwhelmed by the exquisite triumph of having got him back among us, I let him do what he liked with my hands. I closed my eyes. I felt my head, in an ecstasy of spiritual self-forgetfulness, sinking on his shoulder. In a moment more, I should certainly have swooned away at his arms, but for interruption from the outer world, which brought me to myself again. A horrid rattling of knives and forks sounded outside the door, and the footman came in to lay the table for luncheon. Mr. Godfrey started up "'and looked at the clock on the mantelpiece. "'How time flies with you!' he exclaimed. "'I shall barely catch the train.' "'I ventured on asking why he was in such a hurry "'to get back to town. "'His answer reminded me of family difficulties "'that were still to be reconciled, "'and of family disagreements that were yet to come. "'I have heard from my father,' he said. "'Business obliges him to leave prison hall for London today, "'and he proposes coming on here either this evening or tomorrow. I must tell him what has happened between Rachel and me. His heart is set on her marriage. There will be great difficulty, I fear, in reconciling him to the breaking off of the engagement. I must stop him, for all our sakes, from coming here till he is reconciled. Best and dearest of friends, shall we meet again? With those words he hurried out, in equal haste on my side. I ran upstairs to compose myself in my own room before meeting Aunt Abelwhite and Rachel at the luncheon table. I am well aware, to dwell for a moment, yet on the subject of Mr. Godfrey, that the all-profaning opinion of the world has charged him with having his own private reasons for releasing Rachel from her engagement, at the first opportunity she gave him. It has also reached my ears that his anxiety to recover his place, in my estimation, has been attributed in certain quarters, to a mercenary eagerness to make his peace, through me, with a venerable committee woman at the Mother's Small Clothes, abundantly blessed with the goods of this world, and a beloved and intimate friend of my own. I only notice these odious slanders for the sake of declaring that they never had a moment's influence on my mind. In obedience to my instructions, I have exhibited the fluctuations in my opinion of our Christian hero exactly as I find them recorded in my diary. In justice to myself, let me here add that. Once reinstated in this place in my estimation, my gifted friend never lost that place again. I write with the tears in my eyes, burning to say more. But no, I am cruelly limited to my actual experience of persons and things. In less than a month from the time of which I am now writing, events in the money market, which diminished even my miserable little income, forced me into foreign exile, and left me with nothing but a loving remembrance of Mr. Godfrey, which the slander of the world has assailed, and assailed in vain. Let me dry my eyes, and return to my narrative. I went downstairs to luncheon, naturally anxious to see how Rachel was affected by her release from her marriage engagement. It appeared to me, but I own I am a poor authority in such matters, that the recovery of her freedom had set her thinking again of that other man whom she loved, and that she was furious with herself for not being able to control a revulsion of feeling of which she was secretly ashamed. "'Who was the man?' I had my suspicions, but it was needless to waste time in idle speculation. "'When I had converted her, she would, as a matter of course, have no concealments from me. "'I should hear all about the man. I should hear all about the moonstone. "'If I had had no higher object in stirring her up to a sense of spiritual things, "'the motive of relieving her mind of its guilty secrets "'would have been enough of itself to encourage me to go on.' Aunt Abelwhite took her exercise in the afternoon in an invalid chair. Rachel accompanied her. I wish I could drag the chair, she broke out, recklessly. I wish I could fatigue myself till I was ready to drop. She was in the same humor in the evening. I discovered in one of my friend's precious publications, The Life, Letters, and Labors of Miss Jane Ann Stamper, 44th edition, passages which bore with a marvelous appropriateness on Rachel's present position. Upon my proposing to read them, she went to the piano. Conceive how little she must have known of serious people if she supposed that my patience was to be exhausted in that way. I kept Miss Jane Ann Stamper by me and waited for events with the most unfaltering trust in the future. Old Mr. Abelwhite never made his appearance that night, but I knew the importance which his worldly greed attached to his son's marriage with Miss Verinder, and I felt a positive conviction. Do what Mr. Godfrey might to prevent it. "'that we should see him the next day. "'With this interference in the matter, "'the storm on which I had counted would certainly come, "'and the salutary exhaustion of Rachel's resisting powers "'would as certainly follow. "'I am not ignorant that old Mr. Abelwhite "'has the reputation generally, "'especially among his inferiors, "'of being a remarkably good-natured man. "'According to my observation of him, "'he deserves his reputation as long as he has his own way, "'and not a moment longer.' The next day, exactly as I had foreseen, Aunt Abelwhite was as near to being astonished as her nature would permit by the sudden appearance of her husband. He had barely been a minute in the house before he was followed, to my astonishment this time, by an unexpected complication in the shape of Mr. Bruff. I never remember feeling the presence of the lawyer to be more unwelcome than I felt it at that moment. He looked ready for anything in the way of an obstructive proceeding capable even of keeping the peace with Rachel, from one of the combatants. "'Well, this is a pleasant surprise, sir,' said Mr. Ablewhite, addressing himself with his deceptive cordiality to Mr. Bruff. "'When I left your office yesterday, I didn't expect to have the honour of seeing you at Brighton today.' "'I turned over our conversation in my mind after you had gone,' replied Mr. Bruff, "'And it occurred to me that I might perhaps be of some use on this occasion.' I WAS JUST IN TIME TO CATCH THE TRAIN, AND I HAD NO OPPORTUNITY OF DISCOVERING THE CARRIAGE IN WHICH YOU WERE TRAVELING. HAVING GIVEN THAT EXPLANATION, HE SEATED HIMSELF BY RACHEL. I RETIRED MODESTLY TO A CORNER, WITH MISS JANE ANN STAMPER ON MY LAP, IN CASE OF EMERGENCY. MY AUNT SAT AT THE WINDOW, PLACIDLY FANNING HERSELF AS USUAL. MR. Ablewhite STOOD UP IN THE MIDDLE OF THE ROOM, WITH HIS BALD HEAD MUCH PINKER THAN I'D EVER SEEN IT YET. "'and addressed himself in the most affectionate manner to his niece. "'Rachel, my dear,' he said, "'I have heard some very extraordinary news from Godfrey, "'and I'm here to inquire about it. "'You have a sitting-room of your own in this house. "'Will you honour me by showing me the way to it?' "'Rachel never moved. "'Whether she was determined to bring matters to a crisis "'or whether she was prompted by some private sign from Mr. Bruff, "'is more than I can tell.' She declined doing old Mr. Abelwhite the honor of conducting him into her sitting-room. "'Whatever you wish to say to me,' she answered, "'can be said here, in the presence of my relatives, and in the presence,' she looked at Mr. Bruff, "'of my mother's trusted old friend.' "'Just as you please, my dear,' said the amiable Mr. Abelwhite. He took a chair. The rest of them looked at his face.' "'as if they expected it, after seventy years of worldly training, to speak the truth. "'I looked at the top of his bald head, having noticed on other occasions "'that the temper which was really in him had a habit of registering itself there. "'Some weeks ago,' pursued the old gentleman, "'my son informed me that Miss Verinder had done him the honour to engage herself to marry him. "'Is it possible, Rachel, that he could have misinterpreted or presumed upon?' "'what you really said to him?' "'Certainly not,' she replied. "'I did engage myself to marry him.' "'Very frankly answered,' said Mr. Abelwhite. "'And most satisfactory, my dear, so far. "'In respect to what happened some weeks since, "'Godfrey has made no mistake. "'The error is evidently in what he told me yesterday. "'I begin to see it now. "'You and he have had a lover's quarrel.' And my foolish son has interpreted it seriously. Ah! I should have known better than that at his age. The fallen nature in Rachel, the mother Eve, so to speak, began to chafe at this. Pray let us understand each other, Mr. Abelwhite, she said. Nothing in the least like a quarrel took place yesterday between your son and me. If he told you that I proposed breaking off our marriage engagement, and that he agreed on his side, he told you the truth the self-registering thermometer at the top of Mr. Abel White's bald head began to indicate a rise of temper. His face was more amiable than ever. But there was the pink at the top of his face, a shade deeper already. "'Come, come, my dear,' he said, in his most soothing manner. "'Now don't be angry, and don't be hard on poor Godfrey. He has evidently said some unfortunate thing. He was always clumsy from a child. But he means well, Rachel. He means well.' "'Mr. Abelwhite, I have either expressed myself very badly, "'or you are purposely mistaking me. "'Once and for all, it is a settled thing "'between your son and myself that we remain, "'for the rest of our lives, cousins, and nothing more. "'Is that plain enough?' "'The tone in which she said those words made it impossible, "'even for old Mr. Ablewhite, to mistake her any longer. "'His thermometer went up another degree, "'and his voice when he next spoke,' ceased to be the voice which is appropriate to a notoriously good-natured man. I am to understand, then, he said, that your marriage engagement is broken off? You are to understand that, Mr. Abelwhite, if you please. I am also to take it as a matter of fact that the proposal to withdraw from the engagement came in the first instance from you? Yes, it came in the first instance from me, and it meant, as I have told you, with your son's consent and approval, the thermometer went up to the top of the register. I mean, the pink changed suddenly to scarlet. My son is a mean-spirited hound," cried this furious old whirling. "Injustice to myself as his father, not injustice to him. I beg to ask you, Miss Verinder, what complaint you have to make of Mr. Godfrey Ablewhite?" And here Mr. Bruff interfered for the first time. "'You are not bound to answer that question,' he said to Rachel. Old Mr. Abelwhite fastened on him instantly. "'Don't forget, sir, that you are a self-invited guest here. Your interference would have come with a better grace if if you had waited until it was asked for.' Mr. Bruff took no notice. The smooth varnish on his wicked old face never cracked. Rachel thanked him for the advice he had given to her, and then turned to old Mr. Abelwhite, preserving her composure in a manner which— having regard to her age and her sex, was simply awful to see. "'Your son put the same question to me which you have just asked,' she said. "'I had only one answer for him, and I have only one answer for you. I propose that we should release each other, because reflection had convinced me that I should best consult his welfare and mine by retracting a rash promise and leaving him free to make his choice elsewhere.' "'What has my son done?' persisted Mr. Ablewhite. I have a right to know that. What has my son done? She persisted just as obstinately on her side. You have had the only explanation which I think it necessary to give to you, or to him, she answered. In plain English, it's your sovereign will and pleasure, Miss Verinder, to jilt my son. Rachel was silent for a moment. Sitting close behind her, I heard her sigh, Mr. Bruff took her hand and gave it a little squeeze. She recovered herself and answered Mr. Ablewhite as boldly as ever. "'I have exposed myself to worse misconstruction than that,' she said, "'and I've borne it patiently. The time has gone by, when you could mortify me by calling me a jilt.' She spoke with a bitterness of tone which satisfied me that the scandal of the Moonstone had been in some way recalled to her mind. "'I have no more to say,' she added. "'wearily, not addressing the words to anyone in particular, "'and looking away from us all, "'out of the window that was nearest to her. "'Mr. Ablewhite got upon his feet "'and pushed away his chair so violently "'that it toppled over and fell on the floor. "'I have something more to say on my side,' he announced, "'bringing down the flat of his hand on the table with a bang. "'I have to say that if my son doesn't feel this insult, I do.' "'Rachel started.' "'and looked at him in sudden surprise. "'Insult?' she repeated. "'What do you mean?' "'Insult!' reiterated Mr. Abelwhite. "'I know your motive, Miss Verinder, "'for breaking your promise to my son. "'I know it as certainly as if you had confessed it in so many words. "'Your cursed family pride is insulting Godfrey, "'as it insulted me when I married your aunt. "'Her family, her beggarly family, "'turned their backs on her for marrying an honest man.' who had made his own place and won his own fortune i had no ancestors i wasn't descended from a set of cutthroat scoundrels who lived by robbery and murder i couldn't point to the time when the able whites hadn't a shirt to their backs and couldn't sign their own names ha i wasn't good enough for the hern castles when i married and now it comes to the pinch my son isn't good enough for you i suspected it all along you've got the hern castle blood in you my young lady "'I suspected it all along.' "'A very unworthy suspicion,' remarked Mr. Bruff. "'I'm astonished that you have the courage to acknowledge it.' "'Before Mr. Abelway could find words to answer in, "'Rachel spoke in a tone of the most exasperating contempt. "'Surely,' she said to the lawyer, "'this is beneath notice. "'If he can think in that way, "'let us leave him to think as he pleases.' From Scarlet, Mr. Abelwhite was now becoming purple. He gasped for breath, and looked backwards and forwards from Rachel to Mr. Bruff in such a frenzy of rage with both of them, that he didn't know which to attack first. His wife, who had sat impenetrably fanning herself up to this time, began to be alarmed, and attempted, quite uselessly, to quiet him. I had, throughout this distressing interview, felt more than one inward call to interfere with a few earnest words and had controlled myself under a dread of the possible results, very unworthy of a Christian Englishwoman who looks not to what is meanly prudent, but to what is morally right. At the point at which matters had now arrived, I rose superior to all considerations of mere expediency. If I had contemplated interposing my remonstrance of my own humble devising, I might possibly have still hesitated. But the distressing domestic urgency which now confronted me "'was most marvelously and beautifully provided for "'in the correspondence of Miss Jane Ann Stamper. "'Letter 1001, on Peace in Families. "'I rose in my modest corner and opened my precious book. "'Dear Mr. Ablewhite," I said, one word. "'When I first attracted the attention of the company by rising, "'I could see that he was on the point of saying something rude to me. "'My sisterly form of address checked him. "'He stared at me in heathen astonishment.' "'As an affectionate well-wisher and friend,' I proceeded, "'and as one long accustomed to arouse, convince, prepare, "'enlighten, and fortify others, "'permit me to take the most pardonable of all liberties, "'the liberty of composing your mind.' "'He began to recover himself. "'He was on the point of breaking out. "'He would have broken out with anybody else. "'But my voice, habitually gentle, "'possesses a high note or so in emergencies. "'In this emergency,' "'I felt imperatively called upon "'to have the highest voice of the two. "'I held up my precious book before him. "'I wrapped the open page impressively "'with my forefinger. "'Not my words!' I exclaimed "'in a burst of fervent interruption. "'Oh, don't suppose that I claim attention "'for my humble words. "'Manna in the wilderness, Mr. White. Dew on the parched earth. "'Words of comfort. "'Words of wisdom. "'Words of love. "'The blessed, blessed, "'Blessed Words of Miss Jane Ann Stamper.' I was stopped there by a momentary impediment of the breath. Before I could recover myself, this monster in human form shouted out furiously, "'Miss Jane Ann Stamper, be damned!' I shrieked as it passed his lips. I flew to my little bag on the side table. I shook out all my tracts. I seized the one particular tract on profane swearing, entitled, "'Hush for Heaven's Sake!' I handed it to him with an expression of agonized entreaty. He tore it in two, and threw it back at me across the table. The rest of them rose in alarm, not knowing what might happen next. I instantly sat down again in my corner. There had once been an occasion, under somewhat similar circumstances, when Miss Jane Ann Stamper had been taken by the two shoulders and turned out of a room. I waited, inspired by her spirit, for a repetition of her martyrdom. "'But no, it was not to be. "'His wife was the next person whom he addressed. "'Who?' he said, stammering with rage. "'Who asked this impudent fanatic into the house? "'Did you?' "'Before Aunt Ablewhite could say a word, "'Rachel answered for her. "'Miss Clack is here,' she said, as my guest. "'Those words had a singular effect on Mr. Ablewhite. "'They suddenly changed him from a man in state of red-hot anger.' "'to a man in a state of icy-cold contempt. "'It was plain to everybody that Rachel had said something, "'short and plain as her answer had been, "'which gave him the upper hand of her at last. "'Oh,' he said, "'Miss Clack is here as your guest? "'In my house!' "'It was Rachel's turn to lose her temper at that. "'Her colour rose, and her eyes brightened fiercely. "'She turned to the lawyer, "'and pointing to Mr. Abelwhite, asked haughtily, "'What does he mean?' "'Mr. Bruff interfered for the third time. "'You appear to forget,' he said, addressing Mr. Abelwhite, "'that you took this house as Miss Verinder's guardian "'for Miss Verinder's use.' "'Not quite so fast,' interposed Mr. Abelwhite. "'I have a last word to say, "'which I should have said some time since. "'If this—' "'He looked my way, "'pondering what abominable name he should call me. "'If this rampant spinster had not interrupted us—' I beg to inform you, sir, that if my son is not good enough to be Miss Verinder's husband, I cannot presume to consider his father good enough to be Miss Verinder's guardian. Understand, if you please, that I refuse to accept the position which is offered to me by Lady Verinder's will. In your legal phrase, I decline to act. This house has necessarily been hired in my name. I take the entire responsibility of it on my shoulders. It is my house. I can keep it, "'or let it, just as I please. "'I have no wish to hurry, Miss Verinder. "'On the contrary, I beg her to remove her guest and her luggage "'at her own entire convenience.' "'He made a low bow and walked out of the room. "'That was Mr. Abelwhite's revenge on Rachel "'for refusing to marry his son. "'The instant the door closed, "'Aunt Abelwhite exhibited a phenomenon which silenced us all. "'She became endowed with energy enough to cross the room.' "'My dear!' she said, taking Rachel by the hand. "'I should be ashamed of my husband, "'if I didn't know that it is his temper which is spoken to you, "'and not himself.' "'You!' continued Aunt Ablewhite, "'turning on me in my corner with another endowment of energy, "'in her looks this time instead of her limbs. "'You are the mischievous person who irritated him. "'I hope I shall never see you or your tracts again.' She went back to Rachel and kissed her, "'I beg your pardon, my dear,' she said. "'In my husband's name, what can I do for you?' "'Consistently perverse in everything, "'capricious and unreasonable in all the actions of her life, "'Rachel melted into tears at those commonplace words "'and returned her aunt's kiss in silence. "'If I may be permitted to answer for Miss Verinder,' said Mr. Bruff, "'might I ask you, Mrs. Abelwhite, "'to send Penelope down with her mistress's bonnet and shawl.' Leave us ten minutes together, he added, in a lower tone, and you may rely on my setting matters right to your satisfaction as well as to Rachel's. The trust of the family in this man was something wonderful to see. Without a word more, on her side, Aunt Abelwhite left the room. Ah, said Mr. Bruff, looking after her. The Castle blood has its drawbacks, I admit, but there is something in good breeding after all. Having made that purely worldly remark, he looked hard at my corner, as if he expected me to go. My interest in Rachel, an infinitely higher interest than his, riveted me to my chair. Mr. Bruff gave it up, exactly as he had given it up at Aunt Verinder's, in Montague Square. He led Rachel to a chair by the window, and spoke to her there. "'My dear young lady,' he said, "'Mr. Abelwhite's conduct has naturally shocked you and taken you by surprise.' If it was worth while to contest the question with such a man, we might soon show him that he is not to have things all his own way. But it isn't worth while. You were quite right in what you said just now. He is beneath our notice. He stopped and looked round at my corner. I sat there quite immovable, with my tracts at my elbow and with Miss Jane Ann Stamper on my lap. You know," he resumed, turning back again to Rachel. "'that it was part of your poor mother's fine nature always to see the best of the people about her, and never the worst. She named her brother-in-law your guardian because she believed in him, and because she thought it would please her sister. I had never liked Mr. Abelwhite myself, and I induced your mother to let me insert a clause in the will, empowering her executors, in certain events, to consult with me about the appointment of a new guardian. One of those events has happened today and I find myself in a position to end all these dry business details, I hope agreeably, with a message from my wife. Will you honour Mrs. Bruff by becoming her guest? And will you remain under my roof, and be one of my family, until we wise people have laid our heads together and have settled what is to be done next? At those words I rose to interfere. Mr. Bruff had done exactly what I dreaded he would do. "'when he asked Mrs. Ablewhite for Rachel's bonnet and shawl. "'Before I could interpose a word, "'Rachel had accepted his invitation in the warmest terms. "'If I suffered the arrangement thus made between them to be carried out, "'if she once passed the threshold of Mr. Bruff's door, "'farewell to the fondest hope of my life, "'the hope of bringing my lost sheep back to the fold. "'The bare idea of such a calamity as this quite overwhelmed me. "'I cast the miserable trammels of worldly discretion to the winds.' And spoke with the fervor that filled me in the words that came first. Stop! I said. Stop! I must be heard. Mr. Bruff, you are not related to her, and I am. I invite her. I summon the executors to appoint me guardian. Rachel, dearest Rachel, I offer you my modest home. Come to London by the next train, love, and share it with me. Mr. Bruff said nothing. "'Rachel looked at me with a cruel astonishment "'which she made no effort to conceal. "'You are very kind, Drusilla,' she said. "'I shall hope to visit you whenever I happen to be in London. "'But I have accepted Mr. Bruff's invitation, "'and I think it will be best for the present that I remain under Mr. Bruff's care.' "'Oh, don't say so,' I pleaded. "'I can't part with you, Rachel. "'I can't part with you.' "'I tried to fold her in my arms, but she drew back. "'My fervor did not communicate itself. "'It only alarmed her. "'Surely,' she said, "'this is a very unnecessary display of agitation. "'I don't understand it.' "'No more do I,' said Mr. Bruff. "'Their hardness, their hideous, worldly hardness, revolted me. "'Oh, Rachel!' I burst out. "'Haven't you seen yet that my heart yearns to make a Christian of you? "'Has no inner voice told you that I'm trying to do for you?' "'what I was trying to do for your dear mother "'when death snatched her out of my hands?' "'Rachel advanced a step nearer "'and looked at me very strangely. "'I don't understand your reference to my mother,' she said. "'Miss Clack, will you have the goodness to explain yourself?' "'Before I could answer, Mr. Bruff came forward "'and, offering his arm to Rachel, "'tried to lead her out of the room. "'You had better not pursue the subject, my dear,' he said, "'and Miss Clack had better not explain herself. If I had been a stock or a stone, such an interference as this must have roused me into testifying to the truth. I put Mr Bruff aside indignantly with my own hand, and in solemn and suitable language, I stated the view with which sound doctrine does not scruple to regard the awful calamity of dying unprepared. Rachel started back from me. I blushed to write, with a scream of horror. Come away, she said to Mr Bruff. Come away, for God's sake, before that woman can say any more. Oh, think of my poor mother's harmless, useful, beautiful life. You were at the funeral, Mr. Bruff. You saw how everybody loved her. You saw the poor, helpless people crying at her grave over the loss of their best friend. And that wretch stands there and tries to make me doubt that my mother, who was an angel on earth, is an angel in heaven now. Don't stop to talk about it come away. It stifles me to breathe the same air with her. It frightens me to feel that we're in the same room together. Deaf to all remonstrance, she ran to the door. At the same moment her maid entered with her bonnet and shawl. She huddled them on anyhow. Pack my things, she said, and bring them to Mr. Bruff's. I attempted to approach her. I was shocked and grieved, but, it is needless to say, not offended. I only wished to say to her, May your hard heart be softened. I freely forgive you. She pulled down her veil and tore her shawl away from my hand, and, hurrying out, shut the door in my face. I bore the insult with my customary fortitude. I remember it now with my customary superiority to all feeling of offense. Mr. Bruff had his parting word of mockery for me, before he too hurried out on his turn. You had better not have explained yourself, Miss Clack, he said, and bowed, and left the room. The person with the cap-ribbons followed. "'It's easy to see who has set them all by the ears together,' she said. "'I'm only a poor servant, but I declare I'm ashamed of you.' She, too, went out and banged the door after her. "'I was left alone in the room, reviled by them all, deserted by them all. I was left alone in the room.' Is there more to be added to this plain statement of facts, to this touching picture of a Christian persecuted by the world? No. My diary reminds me that one more of the many checkered chapters in my life ends here. From that day forth, I never saw Rachel Verinder again. She had my forgiveness at the time when she insulted me. She has had my prayerful good wishes ever since. And when I die, to complete the return on my part of good for evil, she will have the life Letters and labors of Miss Jane Ann Stamper left her as a legacy by my will. (laughs) Join us next week for the second narrative, which will be contributed by Matthew Bruff, solicitor of Gray's Inn Square. Thanks for joining us for the Moonstone at 1001 Stories for the Road. We always appreciate reviews, and we've had a few recent ones for 1001 Stories for the Road. The first one, five stars. My Nightly Routine I love the stories, and the narration is clear and pleasant to listen to. I listen when I'm out running, and when I lay in bed at night trying to fall asleep. I'm a big fan. That one from SIG 742, Apple Podcast Canada. And this one. First rate, five stars. I've just finished listening to Treasure Island. John is improving his interpretation of the accents and voices. I cracked up when listening to Captain Flint. Thank you, John. That one from Maximum Mary, Apple Podcast Canada. And this one, The Moonstone, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars, very well read, great idea to read classics aloud, my favorite podcast, done from Tomester, Apple Podcast, Switzerland. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to send us these reviews. They are greatly, greatly appreciated. Join us next week Sunday at noon for a brand new narrative at Wilkie Collins, The Moonstone. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.